Hello and welcome to this latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm David Thorpe, Special Project Editor at FT Advisor. The role bonds can play in a balanced portfolio has been called into question by many investors over the past decade as a result of generally low yields and uncertainty around the monetary policy environment. While more recently, worries about the direction of inflation are prompting concerns that a sell-off could loom in fixed income markets after a period of roughly 40 years where bonds generally performed very well. Joining me today to discuss the topic are Ricky Hodges, who runs the Global Dynamic Bond Fund at Nomura, Rupert Thompson, Chief Investment Officer at Kingswood, and Eugene Philolithus, Head of Multi-Asset Investment Management for Europe at Fidelity International. Thank you all for joining me today. Rupert, we'll, we'll start with you on the first question. Given how central banks invest in government bonds for reasons other than a view on the valuation of those bonds, for maybe non-economic reasons, one could argue, how can one think about the risks of investing in bonds as an asset class at the, at the current time? I think the easy response is to say that the risks are even more one-sided than normal because, you know, what's going on at the moment is you've now got, you know, most of the central banks rapidly scaling back their quantitative easing. So in the UK, you know, you've got a QE programme coming to an end at the end of this year. You've got the Fed um, having announced the start of tapering and everyone talking about the pace of tapering um, being sped up. So it now looks like they could actually end all their bond purchases by next March. And that means you're basically looking quite possibly at a rate rise in the States from sort of next spring. And obviously in the UK, you're looking at rate rises starting in the next coming months. So to me, the risks look all too one-sided in the, in the direction of higher yields. Not only have you got central banks you know, cutting back their support, but you've got rates rising, as I've said, and you've got inflation heading up. So it doesn't look great. Eugene, uh, Rupert's been uh, been quite bearish on, yeah. on bonds there, if you'll pardon the pun. Um, what's, what's your view? Are you any, any more optimistic? Well, I agree with a lot of what... Uh... Rupert uh, said in uh, in his uh, response, but I think uh, the way that we think about it, uh, there are there are two ways to think of the risks uh, of investing in government bonds. One is on a standalone basis. Uh, you know, what is the you know what are the risks of uh, you know uh, investing in uh, in interest rate sensitive instruments? But also the other is uh, within the context of a of a multi asset portfolio. So on a standalone basis, uh, you know, if we're assessing uh, government bonds uh, as an investment, we've, you know, we currently have a neutral view. Uh, you know, our outlook suggests that inflation will peak in the first or second quarter of next year. We're also seeing growth momentum slowing from the high levels following the reopening of the economy. But on the other hand, we're seeing you know, significant policy divergence in 2022 as uh, central banks are split between two uh, camps, some that are reducing their extremely accommodative policies and, and others that are you know, likely to stay very easy uh, for a long time. So you can be selective within your government bond allocation to, uh, you know, uh, and, and we, as we think there will possibly be quite meaningful uh, divergence between, uh, between different markets. But uh, when we look at it in the context of multi-asset investors uh, and how they should think about uh, bonds in their portfolios, clearly over the last uh, you know, you know, several uh, decades, we've, uh, you know, bonds have uh, served multiple purposes, offering 
both uh, capital gains, income, uh, as well as uh, defensive properties as, as diversifies to, you know, to equity risk, which is the other predominant risk within uh, investors' portfolios. Uh, and this is a very strong performance of the uh, sort of 60-40 portfolios, so, you know, way exceeding expectations. But one of the sort of key drivers that we see is that over the sort of in terms of the, the big drivers that are driving markets, uh, we think that uh, factors like demographics, factors like uh, the very high debt burdens, which is one of the lasting legacies of the, of the pandemic, uh, we will, we're unlikely to see uh, bond yields rise significantly from here because those uh, debt burdens have to be managed. And, you know, we're, we, in, in the developed world, at least we're seeing aging populations, which will lead to demand for more fixed income instruments. So uh, on that basis, we think that the diversification benefits are still probably there. But in terms of the returns and the income, uh, you know, we think that uh, investors should probably uh, think about looking for other defensive assets within their portfolio as well. Dickie, your fellow panelists are relatively pessimistic by the sounds of it. Normally, we bring the bond guy on to do the pessimism. Surely, you're going to be a bit more optimistic on your own asset class. How do you respond to you guys and to generally just the question of how can you, as a bond guy, really assess the risk and reward of an individual bond investment with all of the uneconomic buyers in, uh, in, in the market? Yeah, thank you very much. I'm going to play devil's advocate here, and I'm going to turn to two points. The first point being not all bonds are the same. We're looking at some of the bond, global government bond markets in developed economies. If you look at emerging economies, there is considerably more yield available and in, typically in these, you've actually got what is known as a real yield. Uh, and so uh, uh, we've grown used to this concept of negative yields at governments and sovereign level in Europe. And obviously, we discount those as really uh, an opportunistic way of delivering a level of income or indeed, realistically, a significant amount of capital. But not all bonds are the same. And in an environment where we've got a negative real yield, which is driving all asset classes higher, then obviously some bonds will benefit out of this more so than others. Uh, we are all in a world where we're having to move further down the capital structure uh, uh, of a company's debt or indeed their equity to deliver a return that meets people's expectations. And that has driven us into more subordinated asset classes with a higher level of yield. And obviously, that, uh, this is uh, one of the issues that has been, been caused by central bank intervention uh, and buying government debt as supportive measure. The other thing which uh, I talk about is interest rates. Uh, equity markets have benefited uh, considerably from the low interest rate environment we've had and the negative interest rate environment we've had. Uh, let's not forget but in 2018, when the Federal Reserve began to consistently rise interest rates as a result of inflation running around about 2.3% annualized rate of inflation, they raised interest rates consistently in 2018. The cost of financing the leverage, and the world is employing far more leverage than it ever has done before, and we can see this even from the measures of the $350 trillion of global debt, so there's more leverage in the system. And in 2018, the cost of leverage considerably rose. The world suffered a margin call. And let's not forget that we did have a high single-digit, low double-digit negative returns on fixed-income asset classes. 
that in that year of 2018, as a result directly of a rise in interest rates, the S&P ended that year with a negative 21% return. And obviously, that was mirrored to a greater or lesser extent across all global equity markets. So let's not forget the fact is that fixed income does have a place and that the rising levels of inflation and governments reacting by raising interest rates to counter that equally has a negative effect on equity markets. And this is all as a result of the negative real yield that we've got. And the fact is, we've all been driven further down the capital structure in the search for both income and a level of capital that meets expectations. Given the, we'll stick with you maybe for the for the next question. Money market participants are wary of investing in fixed income assets at the moment on fears of higher inflation proving persistent. But where do you see the opportunities as a bond investor in such an environment? Uh, well, obviously there are the, the, the straightforward and typical answer would be you're going to do an allocation to more inflation immunized assets and certainly inflation linked gilts would be an instance. These have obviously benefited equally and valuations are very high with these, but nonetheless, they have a component. So as inflation rises, the fact is this component will work into the favour of the bondholder. And obviously, there are European inflation-linked assets as well as US dollar and, in fact, global inflation-linked assets, some more liquid than the others. So there are ways of participating in fixed income and capturing some of that elevated levels of inflation as they come through. Other uh, other forms of managing uh, inflation, uh, looking from the synthetic side and the derivative side of things, which equally allows us to, under both scenarios, capture returns out of rising inflation uh, and indeed benefit from falling inflation, uh, which we are actually seeing longer dated inflation uh, priced into assets falling in expectation that interest rate rises in the near term will come through and governments will be successful in limiting the uh, the future rises of inflation. So today, inflation is actually being priced less in the future than it is currently. So there are ways, and equally, as I suggested early, uh, earlier, uh, uh, you can look at emerging market assets. And long-dated emerging market debt uh, has positive real yields. Uh, in 2020 and 2019, uh, we actually benefited considerably from things like a long-dated Italian sovereign debt, which at that stage had uh, was one of the only places in the world where we had uh, a positive real yield. And there still are areas in the world on an inflation-adjusted basis, uh, even, uh, even emerging debt on a fully hedged basis, that deliver us a, re, a, a yield that is greater than that of uh, the, the, uh, the current level of running inflation. So there equally are opportunities where we can participate. Uh, and actually, in a world of rising inflation, isn't necessarily going to deliver negative returns across all fixed income asset classes, but certainly some of these are more attractive than others. Rupert, if we do get... I, I, I don't really want this to be a discussion on where we think inflation is going to go. But if we do get persistently higher inflation, how do you think about bond allocations in, in that scenario? I sort of agree with a lot of what Dick has just said. I mean, in terms of index-linked bonds, the only other point I'd make is that 
you are getting some protection, but not complete protection, as Dickie just said. But the other point is if yields are heading higher, then actually index-linked bonds tend to be long duration. So if yields are trending up higher, you will get capital losses on there. So compared to sort of other sort of bits of thinking, bits of thinking like high yield, which are basically much shorter maturity, you have got quite a lot of duration risk if you're going into inflation-linked bonds. The only other point I'd make is that if you think, you know, the response of central banks to higher inflation is going to be raising rates, then you very want to much be in sort of floating rate assets rather than fixed rate assets. So again, if you look at sort of asset-backed securities, mortgage-backed securities, again, you know, it's a complicated instrument and you do need sort of, as it were, an expert to sort of invest in these things for you. But if you are able to find one, then you do get a yield pickup there and you're not exposed to rising rates, whereas in conventional bonds, clearly you are. Eugene, how, how do you uh, think about these uh, these questions? So currently we're seeing uh, opportunities in, in China government bonds. Uh, the, the key reasons for that are that, you know, we uh, they're offering an attractive uh, yield, which is, you know, positive both on a, you know, on a nominal basis, but also when adjusting for inflation. They're highly correlated with uh, Chinese growth uh, and, you know, China, we say, uh, determines growth for the world. So if Chinese growth is good, then that's good for global growth. If Chinese growth is poor, then that's uh, poor. <laughs> that's not very good for, for global growth, just given the importance of its, uh, of its economy. Um, so if you are concerned about uh, you know, growth uh, in 2022, then Chinese government bonds are, are, are attractive. They're increasing in liquidity. Uh, they're in, in, you know, more and more being included in uh, sort of indices that investors follow. Uh, and so that increases the uptake by global investors. Uh, but the other positive thing is that they're also not very highly correlated with other developed bond markets. So they do uh, tend to, to do their own thing a bit. And that offers uh, also a bit of diversification within, um, uh, within investor portfolios. There is the question of currency. But we, uh, you know, we think that uh, the, the the currency is generally, uh, you know, um, a smaller factor within the co context of uh, investing in China government bonds. We also think that uh, you know EM emerging market local currency yields are are attractive, given that some of the central banks there have already tightened rates or are already tightening, and so they're offering uh, attractive real yields as well. And uh, so within that context, there is, uh, you know, there's additional income to be had in, within the uh, context of emerging markets. Rupert, we'll, we'll come to you first for the, for the next question. Default rates have been much lower over the past 18 months than many might have expected, and that's probably partly due to uh, various uh, types of government interventions. But a scenario where we have positive GDP growth uh, and some inflation might might be regarded as ideal for the investment case for high yield bonds. But how do you think about those sort of um, investments in in the mandates that you oversee at Kingswood? We are relatively positive on high yield for sort of the reasons just just alluded to. In that, you know, within the fixed income space, if you're looking for income, there aren't many alternatives to to go for, and high yield is an obvious one. And, you know, in terms of the spread you're getting over sort of conventional government bonds, I mean, the drawback or the risk, as it were, is that like spreads right across the board, you know, it is at historical levels. But, 
you're still looking at a spread of around sort of close to 400 basis points, whereas sort of investment grade bonds, you're looking at spreads of sort of closer to 120. So on a relative perspective, it looks reasonably attractive. And if you think growth is going to remain relatively strong next year, sure, it's going to be slowing, but it's probably still going to remain above trend. If you think rates, sure, they're going to be rising, but they're still going to remain relatively low, then you've got to think that default rates are probably going to remain on the low side, you know, no more than 2% or so. So once you sort of take that into account, um, the fact that, you know, default risk is probably going to remain relatively low, you've got a spread of sort of close to 400 basis points. And also the fact that high yield bonds tend to be sort of relatively short duration. So you've got sort of reduced exposure to, to rising yields. We think high yield generally looks sort of within fixed income, um, one of the more attractive areas. Dicky, how do you view high yield at the moment from a valuation point of view? Is, is that where you, uh, you want to be? If I'm looking globally all fixed income asset classes, uh, high yield to me uh, seems relatively fully valued. I fully appreciate that there is some yield relative to uh, an, uh, any other, an, an, another fixed income asset class. But it's very difficult if you're looking at uh, all fixed income asset classes to value it against something else, which is quite possibly the most uh, uh, expensive and distorted fixed income asset class, which is that obviously of sovereign government bond yields, whether you're looking at European, UK, US or elsewhere in the world. Uh, the fact is, uh, as correctly pointed out from an investment grade credit, asset swaps or the spread, the additional yield you'll get premium you're getting for owning corporate debt is at pretty much very low levels. The levels going back to pre the financial crisis of 2007. Uh, I've actually, uh, and even if you look at the high yield, a high yield is very much the same. The uh, additional yield you're getting or the spread over a sovereign debt is running at exceptionally low levels. And in fact, the all-in yield on European high yield is around about 2%. It still looks attractive when you've got negative yields elsewhere. But the fact is high yield has benefited from two things. The uh, implied support given when uh, Chairman Powell indicated that the Federal Reserve would be buying high yield assets to support and provide liquidity for the asset class during the lockdowns of 2020. So it's benefited from that. But equally, high yield is very, very sensitive to the level of equity markets. Now, we know that equity markets are running at historical high levels pretty much today. I know we've had some recent weakness, but realistically, you're looking at exceptionally high levels. Year to date, there has been $900 billion going in, uh, of inflows into global equities. In the 19 years prior to this year, collectively, there has been only $785 billion in the, all of the 19 years going into equities. And this year, we're close to $900 billion alone this year. It far exceeds any levels. So I'm very cautious of many asset classes, including high yield, where they've benefited from the implied support from central banks, which is going to be removed. It's going to be removed in December. It's going to be accelerated. The amount of uh, uh, the tapering is going to come through much quicker. And equally, the probability is the Federal Reserve will raise rates in the middle of the this year of next year. So the fact is, high yield valuations to me look very, very expensive. Yes, on a relative basis to other fixed income asset classes, they do offer some measure. But I would say the measure of additional yield you're getting and the incremental additional income which you're benefiting from 
will not protect you from either rising interest rates from the Federal Reserve or indeed any potential risk events that are coming through. And obviously, they're very highly correlated to equity markets. So if you think that equity markets are going to continue to go higher, then high yield offers a measure of valuation. If you're less supportive or less have less conviction about the equity markets continuing to deliver strong positive returns, then high yield is uh, relatively expensive. Eugene, how, how do you think about high yield at the, at the current time? Well, we're still uh, fairly constructive on high yield, although we think that valuations, uh, especially within the US and European markets, are, are probably uh, you know, fully valued. Uh, Fundamentals overall are, are improving as uh, leverage metrics uh, continue to improve as you know, company earnings have, have come up and that helps them manage their, their, their balance sheet uh, leverage uh, numbers. Uh, and when we look at uh, ratings migration as well, we, you know, we're seeing that being positive with more upgrades than downgrades and uh, defaults into next year are expected to stay low. However, when we look at what markets are pricing in now versus what could be, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the various scenarios that play out for 2022. Uh, we think that there's, you know, for U.S. and European high yield, actually, the upside uh, versus the downside is is not that attractive. So the market is pretty much priced for, you know, for perfection or for a lot of, you know, uh, good news or, or not much much change anyway. Um, where we do see actually quite a lot of uh, attractive uh, valuation um, emerging is, is is within Asia high yield. Now, Asia high yield has been uh, you know particularly uh, hit by what's going on in China in terms of the change in regulations uh, and the change in policy and the impact on the property sector. And it's been quite a uh, brutal six months for that uh, for that asset class as a whole, with spreads. You know, uh, and sorry, overall yields peaking at uh, you know over twelve percent when you compare that to U.S. and uh, high yield, which is at you know four or five percent, and European high yield, which is in the th- in the three percent range. That clearly shows that there's been quite a lot of movement uh, in in that uh, market. Um, but we think that this is a real opportunity, and when we look at the upside downside scenarios for Asia high yield, we can see you know significant upside from this level uh, and we think that there are a few catalysts that might happen such as you know china policy or or, or some you know other factors which help uh, companies manage their their liquidity in the short term um, but also when you look at fundamentals the broad broadly speaking balance sheets in asian corporates are pretty strong so you've got very attractive valuations uh, good fundamentals uh, and we need maybe a, few, a couple of catalysts to change sentiment, and that should lead to some uh, some decent returns for, for next year. Rupert, what does it tell us that, although yields have risen since the depths of the pandemic in, in March 2020, to a large extent they've really just gone back to where they were in, in 2019, when perhaps uh, inflation wasn't the thing that people were, were worried about, People were not really anticipating significantly higher interest rates then. What does the what does the bond market know that the rest of us uh, don't with its uh, current pricing? Good question. <laughs> I guess you sort of focused in on one of the or well, one of the areas which I'd say has caught a lot of people by surprise this year. In that sort of government longer term government bond deals have not done what the consensus thought they would do. I mean, they may have ended up 
where the consensus probably thought they might have ended up in terms of direction. So you had a sharp sell-off obviously earlier in the year, then a sharp rally, then a renewed sell-off, and now you've had a bit of a rally. So in terms of why they're still so low, I mean, there's a variety of reasons, I think. I think it's probably the easiest way to characterise it is that people think rates are going up, but they're not confident that economies, or they're going to be able to go up that far without sort of damaging recovery. And part of the reason for this, as we've already alluded to, is the fact you've got this massive debt burden now, so economies are pretty sensitive to rate rises. So as it were, the longer term level of rates, which these economies can withstand without going into recession, is arguably lower than before, just because of the increased debt burden. So in terms of sort of where the Fed thinks the neutral sort of Fed funds rate is, it's only two and a half percent. That may be wrong, and I think it probably is too low. But for the moment, that's what the market seems to be believing. Um, so I think it's partly a reflection of basically the market saying the economy can't withstand too high a level of rates in the longer term. Um, it may also be that the market is saying actually um, – Inflation is actually not going to be too much of a problem anyway, despite what it's doing at the moment. So the central banks won't have to raise rates that far or for that long, actually. And I guess the final thing is that it probably shows that there's quite a lot of demand at the end of the day for sort of for safe assets or supposedly safe assets. So, you know, once Treasury yields get up above one and a half percent on a relative basis compared to sort of, you know, what you're getting from, say, years and government bonds, they look relatively attractive or sort of compared to JGBs. Um, not so much against gilts any longer, but you are still getting support. So I think it's a combination of factors, sort of demand from investors, because you still, they may not be yielding much, but they are yielding more than before. And also people are sceptical about sort of what the long-term of rates, long-term level of rates these economies can support. Uh, Eugene, you, you referenced in, in one of your previous answers uh, this this debt burden um issue um is is the bond market simply saying the debt burden means rates can't go up the debt burden also perhaps means that the trend rate of economic growth into the future will be maybe a little bit lower and therefore lower yields are, are justified or is it a question of central banks are firing so much cash at the market that yields are artificially low well i think it comes back to the uh, to the longer term factors and some of those uh things we mentioned earlier, such as the the debt burdens uh, as a result of the, the pandemic, because, you know, if we look at what the debt levels are now uh, compared to where we were before the uh, the pandemic, they're significantly higher, you know, in, in some measures um, as, as a percentage of GDP, um, as, as high as they were, you know, at the end of World War Two. So coming out of a, you know, um, you know uh, a very different situation. Um, so, uh, but also, you know, and central banks understand this. They know that they can't afford to raise rates, uh, even though we've got, you know, higher expected growth and, and possibly higher inflation, uh, because that will really affect the funding costs for, for corporates and governments. And, uh, and so they need to keep um, you know, uh, rates low. Now, where they will, what they will probably try to do is to manage that through um, keeping nominal rates, uh, you know, fairly well controlled and range bound uh, and let inflation expectations feed through by having real rates uh, stay deeply negative and maybe even more negative than the current record lows. Uh, so this is a real uh, challenge for central banks uh, as they're walking a real tightrope and, you know, um, in terms of 
2022. It's a real catch 2022, um, as we've dubbed it in our outlook for next year, um, as they have to manage inflation expectations and while trying to keep uh, nominal rates uh, fairly well contained. Dicky, uh, the uh, the demise of you bond guys has been predicted probably every week for for most of the last forty years, but um, you're, you're still you're still you're still around. Um, what does the bond market know that the rest of us doesn't about um, about future inflation and um, interest rates as reflected by its by the yields? First and foremost, the bond markets obviously uh, have been affected by the sheer amount of liquidity. Long term, we know that there's been a move uh, due to demographics uh, of a shift into fixed income asset classes. Equally, we were only discussing a few years ago about the potential of a Japanification and actually persistent negative or drawdowns in inflation expectations. And we've been debating this issue for a long time. There has been a significant amount of liquidity enter capital markets over the course of the last two years. Uh, and as such, this liquidity, uh, and certainly if you look in the, in the instance of the US, the banks have so much liquidity that a lot of this liquidity, uh, and in the form of checks, you know, we know that the Federal Reserve handed out uh, $1.9 trillion of monies. Uh, that money ended up back into the banking system. The US banks are sitting on record amounts of liquidity. They are by far the single largest buyer of U.S. treasuries. Uh, this liquidity has worked themselves not just into fixing our asset classes, but all, all asset classes, whether you're talking equities or indeed bitcoins of the world. This liquidity is still there. If we're looking at this from the point of view of um, quantitative tapering, in the first instance of quantitative tapering, it will involve... Uh, no longer buying mortgage-backed and ASIC-backed securities. This is floating rate securities. Uh, but it actually will result in the first instance of buying more U.S. treasuries. Equally, the liquidity that is sitting at the banks, you can see the sheer size of this by looking at just things like the overnight repo facility. There's trillions of dollars there sitting there, which shows you an ind indicative of the amount of cash that's in the system. And all US banks are buying US treasuries. So it's no wonder that US treasury yields remain lower, regardless of expectations on the future level of inflation going higher. Uh, so there's a number of reasons why uh, yields are where they are. And if we look at inflation, inflation is already priced to be higher. If you look at five-year break-evens, which is the difference between inflation-linked security and nominal real yields and nominal yields, these are running at the highest levels it has for the best part of two decades. If you look at five-year inflation swaps, they're already discounting inflation is going to be at 3.5%, or well, they were. 10-year are discounting 3%, and 30-year inflation is already discounting 2.5%. So the markets are already uh, discounting a higher level of yield uh, inflation, but yields are where they are. If the, if the U.S. economy starts recovering and U.S. banks start delivering loans, that, you know, you, if you see some U.S. loan growth coming back into the system, well, U.S. banks, again, have to hold what is known as HQLA. This is high-quality liquid assets. So they extend a loan facility. They then have to go and buy high-quality liquid assets. Well, I think you both, you and I both know 
with high quality liquid assets are U.S. Treasury, U.S. Treasuries, and also U.S. Uh, U.S. Uh, T bills. But equally, we also know that a lot of these yields have manipulated, been manipulated lower by central banks, and there is obviously always the threat in the future, as we've seen elsewhere in Japan and in Australia, that we could have longer-term yield curve control by treasuries and central banks to keep yields low, because as we know, if yields go too high, then this will have a negative effect on the refinancing operations of U.S. households and their mortgage industry. This will put pressure on housing markets lower, and indeed, in turn, this will put pressure on economies to roll over, slow down, and then we're back to the same old story of falling inflation and these issues. Okay. So there is a reason why Treasury yields are low, and there is a reason why they will almost certainly remain low and probably undershoot people's expectations on the future level of government bond yields as we move forward. Given how low yields are now and have been for quite some time, should we start thinking of owning bonds for capital gain rather than income? We've, we've all been there with uh, predictions that yields couldn't possibly go any lower, and then they promptly do. And uh, Eugene will come to you for, the, for this one. Well, that, that is the, the real question. Uh, so with the exception of a few areas, maybe like Asia high yield, we don't believe that uh, you know, um, high quality government bonds should be used for, for income now. We think capital gains will be will be challenging as well, um, but you know when we look at the the longer term returns from uh, from fixed income, the the income is the um, uh, is the key element here. So it will be a, a combination of uh, looking for those attractive areas for income, and and you know we, we've touched on some of those areas, but capital gains I think will be. Uh, will be fairly challenging for for fixed income over over 2022 unless we see a very major change in the uh, in the growth environment for next year. Thank you, um, Rupert. How how do you uh, think about that question? For for much of the last uh, decade, we we heard um, bond yields can't possibly go any lower, which which obviously means prices inversely couldn't go any higher, and then they promptly did. Um, but, but is that something that we should uh, that we should actually think about bonds as a capital gains instrument and equities are an income instrument? No, I'm definitely in the camp. I think along with what Eugene's saying, that so you've got to think of them um, as an income instrument rather than a source of capital gain from here. Um, I think yields are going to be trending higher, maybe not massively so, but if they trend higher, that means you're going to be looking at capital losses rather than capital gains. And in terms of income, Sure, you know, bits of or large parts of um, fixed income, you're not getting much yield. But as we've already discussed, there are pockets such as emerging market debt, high yield debt, where actually you are still getting a positive re-yield. And just one final point. I mean, in a way, I think sort of one of the ways you should look at owning fixed income or a major way of looking at why you should own fixed income isn't either for the capital gain or for the income specifically, but as a diversifier to your other asset holdings. Thank you. And um, Dickie, as a, as a bond investor, and I'm sure you, you make uh, some investments uh, with, with purely clipping the coupon in, in mind and collecting that, that yield. But, and sometimes you, uh, you, you buy because you think that the price of a bond is going up. But is the, is, the, is the balance shifting? Are you finding more and more opportunities that are based on capital gain and, and fewer based on income? Well, I mean, I agree that uh, I agree that uh, fixed income is to an income. 
uh, you know, we're supposed to be allocating more to fixed income assets as we go older because they're, they're supposed to deliver you a level of income that reasonably, be, reasonably meets your expectations without the measure, measure of capital volatility. That's why historically we've always seen as we go older more allocation towards fixed income in your own personal pension plan. The fact of the matter is that this is always the case. I'm a total return fixed income manager. My job is to deliver level of income. I, I, we, as fixed income, we put in medium to longer term strategies to deliver the coupon, deliver the income element. Uh, any additional forms of capital appreciation is beneficial, but our role is to deliver a level of income that meets expectations. We shouldn't deliver a meaningful level of capital loss on this if we can manage these investments correctly, either through shorter or longer term duration assets, but certainly from a level of income. We've all grown used to a level of capital, uh, but much of the capital return potential moving forward out of some of or majority of fixed income assets has gone. It leaves us a level of income. In many instances, the level of income is disappointing and doesn't meet our expectations. But nonetheless, fixed income asset class has its place within an asset allocation across a multi-asset range, and obviously certainly from a longer-term pension, delivering a level of income that uh, meets people's expectations. Thank you for that, Dickie, and thank you to Rupert Thompson, Chief Investment Officer at Kingswood, and Eugene Philalethis, Head of Multi-Asset Investment Management Europe at Fidelity International. And thank you all for joining me today, and do remember to tune in to the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.